Um, we are looking this evening at the second to last chapter in the book of Acts. It's Acts chapter 27, and it's a suspenseful event. And in the message, I'll be reading more scripture than is normal, but what I'm going to do is read a few verses at a time, make just some brief comments in between those verses, and then make a few points at the end. And the context is that uh, Paul is about to sail for Italy. The destination is Rome. The Lord had told him back in Acts chapter 23 that as Paul had testified about him in Jerusalem, so Paul must also testify about the Lord in Rome. And yet after the Lord told Paul that, there was a plot to kill Paul, and he ended up in prison for two years in Caesarea, neither being convicted nor acquitted and released, uh, under two governors and a king. But at last, when we get to chapter 27, as, as it opens up, we see it was decided that we would set sail for Italy. So let me say a brief prayer, and then we will take a look at this. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us as we hear it to understand, be built up in love, wisdom, and obedience, that Christ may receive honor and glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Verses 1 and 2. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramitium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. Notice the first person plural says, we would sail for Italy. The, of course, the ultimate author of all scriptures, the Holy Spirit, but, but uh, Luke was the instrument through whom the Holy Spirit spoke. And Luke, Dr. Luke, accompanies Paul. We would sail for Italy, and at least one other co-laborer, Aristarchus, is also with them. To send Paul to Rome, the governor made arrangements for Paul and some other prisoners to be under the custody of a Roman centurion named Julius, along with a small body of soldiers. And probably your Bibles have a map of this journey, and so I would encourage you to take a look there. Uh, it helps, understand, helps in understanding what went on. This journey gives us a, an interesting glimpse into ancient sea travel. In general, ships clung to the coasts of the Mediterranean Sea, and generally they avoided sailing during winter. Now I'll read verse 3. The next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so that they might provide for his needs. If anyone thinks of Paul as being a severe, unlikable old man, you have a misconception. People followed Paul. People trusted Paul. Here Paul has been in the custody for one day of this Roman centurion, 
and Julius is pleased to give Paul freedom to go visit friends. Perhaps he sent a soldier with Paul, but he's pleased to do that. Now, verses 4 through 6, From there we put out to sea again and passed to the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra and Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. Okay, so they finally get on this final ship that's going to go to Italy. This ship was perhaps 150 feet long, perhaps 38 feet wide. We learn later in the passage that there are 276 people on board the ship. Now, verses 7 and 8. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Canidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the Lee of Crete opposite Salome. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lasea. Okay, so the normal route would have taken them past Crete. They probably would have gone uh, along the northern shore of Crete. But on this occasion, the ship rounded the eastern tip of Crete in order to continue westward on the south side of the island. But the journey was difficult, and it was hard to reach Fair Havens, the first convenient shelter. But Fair Havens is an open bay and a poor harbor for bad weather. Now, verses 9 through 13. Much time had been lost, and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the fast. So Paul warned them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. Okay, so just to get to Fair Havens, the, the voyage had already taken considerable length of time. Now, from what I read, it was considered uh, dangerous to sail after mid September. And here Luke mentions that it become dangerous because now it was after the fast. He was referring to the Jewish Day of Atonement, which would have taken place at the end of September or the beginning of October. So navigation was considered dangerous after September 15th, and then it ceased from the middle of November to the middle of March. And Paul warns them of certain disaster if they sail. But the centurion, I can understand this. I mean, you've got the centurion, and you've got Paul, and you've got the pilot, and you've got the owner of the ship. And the centurion heeds the counsel of the pilot and the owner of the ship. And also, Fair Havens was an unsuitable harbor to winter in. So they set out for Phoenix, which would be a safe port west of Fair Havens. Now, verses 14 through 20. Oh, I didn't read 13. We'll read 13 through 20. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought they had obtained what they wanted. So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called a northeaster swept down from the island. 
The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. So we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Calda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. When the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Fearing that they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. Now, I can't imagine being in hurricane force winds in a modern ship. Here they are on what to us was an ancient wooden sailing vessel. And they were towing a lifeboat behind them, but it was interfering with the progress of the ship, interfering with the steering, and may have also been in danger of of, uh, being being crushed against the ship and the wind and the waves, and so they brought it on board. And to give a sense of how they, they sense the fragility of the ship in the storm, they passed the ropes under the ship to try to keep it from being broken apart. And the storm was so great that the sailors had no idea where they were in relation to land or rocks or shoals, and the weather was so bad they were not able to observe sun or moon by which they would have made some reckoning of their whereabouts. And humanly speaking, it appeared to have little or no chance of survival. And so despondency set in in the ship. Now verses 21 through 26. After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night an angel of the God whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. Uh, This section that I just read, I'm going to comment on more uh, later in the sermon. I'm going to continue on reading now, verses 27 through 29. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea, When about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found that it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. So here they are in the Adriatic Sea, which is between Italy and Malta and Crete and Greece, and it says they sensed that they were, what does it say, they were, that they were approaching land. Is that what it says? Uh, they took 
Yeah, they sensed they were approaching land. I don't know if it was by the way the waves were breaking. Of course, these men that had made their lives living on the sea uh, had that knowledge. And it goes on here, verses 30 through 32. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it fall away. Well, the centurion seems to believe Paul now. <laughs> uh, maybe he is beginning to understand that Paul has wisdom. Maybe he's even beginning to think that Paul has some kind of uncommon divine knowledge. Now, verses 33 through 38. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. Okay, so uh, no provisions for two weeks had been distributed on the ship. No meals eaten since the storm uh, began because of the constant suspense. And we see here Paul's practical pastoral care. Men, you need to eat. Sometimes the appropriate ministry to someone is to encourage them to eat or to sleep or to rest. And now I'm going to read verse, verses 39 through the first verse of chapter 28. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping, but the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those that could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on pieces of the ship, in this way, everyone reached land safely. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. Okay, so they throw overboard the remaining bags of wheat to lighten the ship so that it could sail further towards the shore. Remember, the storm is still raging. They cut the anchors, they hoist the foresail, and make for the shore. And this is like 
the thriller of a movie. They've been through 14 days in constant suspense. And at last they see land and they're going to make for the shore. And just when you think they're going to reach the end of this suspenseful journey, two additional crises come about. The ship gets stung, stuck on the sandbar and the soldiers plan to kill all the prisoners, which would include Paul. But thanks be to God for the centurion who stopped that deed. Okay, now I'd like to go over a few points from what we've just read. And it's this, dear friends. In what ways have you set out for Rome but ended up in Malta? You can trust the Lord if you're in Malta. Imagine after two years in jail multiple court trials, Paul finally had set out for the place promised him by the Lord, Rome, and he ends up shipwrecked in Malta. Where have you been swept into tumultuous waters by the hurricanes of life? Perhaps like the men as they pass by the small island of Cauda out in the heart of the sea, you're watching the land disappear and you want to do something about it, but you sense your helplessness. Has it been a recent doctor's appointment? Has it been an operation? Is there trouble in your marriage? Is there trouble with your children? Is there trouble that you have no marriage? Is there trouble that you have no children? Is it trouble at work, trouble with friends? Why did Paul end up in Malta? Well, we can't rule out satanic opposition. Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians, speaking about wanting to come see them. For we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan stopped us. Why did Paul end up in Malta? Well, it could be to prove and improve his faith. Peter writes, these trials have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. This, we, read, we read from, or we sang from Psalm 119 this evening. Psalm 119.71 says this, It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. Why did Paul end up in Malta? Well, much of it we just don't know. Romans 11.33 says this, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, and his paths are beyond tracing out. Dear friends, why your Malta? Why your Malta? Maybe there's some satanic opposition. But remember that everything that comes into the life of God's people, even the opposition from Satan, passes through the hand of God first. Satan is God's Satan, and Satan can only do what God permits. Maybe it's come about to prove and improve your faith, that the trials will cause the dross to be removed and make your faith, which is more precious than silver, all the more refined. And dear friends, maybe much of it we just don't know. His paths are beyond tracing out. 
But in that passage itself, it's saying that his paths, which are beyond tracing out, are based upon his wisdom and knowledge. So, dear friends, take heart if you set out for Rome and you've ended up in some ways in Malta. Proverbs 16.9 says this, A man's heart deviseth his way, but Yahweh directs his steps. And honestly, that's what I want. (laughs) I trust the Lord's direction. I don't, I was going to say, I don't trust my own. I don't fully trust my own. I, I want the Lord's will done. Anything apart from his will scares me, right? Okay, now, that, that's the first point, that if, um, that if you've set out for Rome and ended up in Malta, you can trust the Lord, right? Uh, and the second point uh, is derived particularly from verse 24. Remember I said there was a section that I was going to refer to later in the sermon. This is it right now. In verse 24, Paul is speaking to these men who've been through these days of suspense and perilous times, and he says this, God has great... Well, Paul says that an angel of God spoke to Paul, and the angel said this, God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. And... More than one commentary I read said this. I'm going to read you the words of one commentary. The wording implies that Paul had prayed for his fellow travelers and that God had heard his prayer. Now, remember in verse 10, Paul, when he was looking what was about to happen, he said, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous, great loss to the ship, great loss to the cargo, and to our own lives also. But here in verse 24, the angel of God informs them, God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. It seems that Paul, in the midst of the storm, perhaps in the midst of weakness, perhaps in the midst of feeling seasick, prayed to God for the lives of those with him. And the angel announces to Paul that all 276 on board will live, and it seems to be an answer to Paul's prayer. Now, what kind of people was Paul praying for? He was praying for the one who was put in charge over him to keep him from running free. He was praying for sailors who demonstrated by trying to steal away in the lifeboat that they will give up the lives of others. They will give up Paul's life to save their own. He is praying for soldiers who are willing to kill Paul and the other prisoners rather than risk their own lives. Those are the people that Paul was praying for. Let me give you another example. This is a Compelling passages in Genesis chapter 18, verse 20 and following. Then Yahweh said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before Yahweh. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? 
What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Yahweh said, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. What if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. Abraham pled for Sodom. Moses, in Numbers chapter 14, is being grumbled against. He and Aaron are being grumbled against by all the Israelites. And they're saying, wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? Why don't we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt? And the whole assembly talked about stoning Moses and Aaron. And then the Lord comes to Moses and says this, How long will these people treat me with contempt? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them, but I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. And Moses answered, If you put these people to death all at one time, the nations who have heard this report about you will say, Yahweh was not able to bring these people into the land he promised on oath. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sins of these people, just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. Here, these people were going to stone Moses and Aaron. And Moses pleads with the Lord not to wipe them out. And, the, and it says, Yahweh replied, I have forgiven them as you have asked. And then there's this interesting thing that goes on in the book of Jeremiah. The Lord has decided... No ifs, ands, or buts. He's going to bring his judgment on Judah. And three times, God tells Jeremiah to stop praying for the people of Judah. And all three times, Jeremiah goes on and he continues praying for the people of Judah. And God does not punish Jeremiah. Why has the Lord placed you in Malta? Maybe it's part of his plan that allows some satanic opposition. It certainly, it is to prove and improve your faith. Maybe there are reasons we don't know, 
But maybe in part, it's that you might pray for the lives of people around you in that sphere to which you have been led. God has put you there that you might care for their lives, and they may be a bunch who care nothing for your life. But God has put you there that you might care for their lives, that you might pray for them, and that in the midst of the stormy seas with them, you might demonstrate and even say, as Paul did, the Lord stood beside me, he is with me. If you know God, those on the stormy seas of life, those who would kill you, need you. They need your witness. They need your prayers. May we have the heart of Paul, the heart of Abraham, the heart of Moses, the heart of Jeremiah, the heart of Christ. The third point I want to make here is this, dear friends. You're going to make it to Rome. Uh, The hurricanes of this life will not keep you away from where God has promised to take you. And perhaps the hurricanes of life will make the arrival all the sweeter. And how will you get there? You will get there because one, there is one who has died for you and who prays for you. Jesus in John 17 said this, I pray for those who will believe in me through their message. Father, I want those you have given to me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. He prayed for his enemies when he was on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And Hebrews 7.25 informs us he's praying even now. He is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. And then the final point I want to make is, is to any who might be here tonight, who perhaps up until now have not known the Lord's presence in the storm because you haven't known the Lord, because you haven't believed in Him. Those who do not believe in Christ do not have that that the Holy Spirit's presence within them in those trials. And, And the Bible is all too clear that ultimately those who reject Christ have an ultimate destiny of hell. But those who truly believe in Christ have the peace of God's presence and heaven is their sure destiny and they shall surely arrive there. Maybe the Lord has sent a storm in your life to show you how little ultimately the cargo, the riches of this life really mean when faced with great trial. Look to the one who has the Power, the heart, the fully needed capacity to save you from your sins, to cheer you with his presence, and ultimately to bring you safely to the harbor of his side in heaven. Let us pray.